It's week eight of 2018, and in addition to the news, we're also going to do an interview with Asif from Verant, who's going to tell us how they're using AI to improve your network security. And that's all coming up in the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I am your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and it is week eight, week eight of 2018. And uh, for those of you uh, who saw what the groundhog did a couple of weeks ago, uh, he is a liar, and it is, uh, I think, 90 degrees outside. The, the humidity has not come yet, and we're here in, in Don's office, which is uh, a cool 88 degrees, I think. Yeah. So, uh, Don, how are you? I feel the summer breeze blowing through in yes. this beautiful February. And the nice thing is here in Florida, we've got, uh, you know, eight months of of uh, grueling temperatures to look forward to, so that's fantastic. But we also today have a lot to look forward to in terms of uh, some great news articles. We've got um, Google, Samsung, Microsoft, uh, AWS, and some of them uh, are are good things that happen to those companies, and some are not. And we will definitely get to the news here in a minute. But first, uh, we do have an interview today that we wanted to to show that we were able to record just the other day. Uh, And it it is with Asif Ayal, who's the Senior Vice President uh, for Enterprise Cyber Global Business at Verant. And uh, Verant is someone we talked to at uh, RSA uh, back in 2017. And uh, Don, do you remember uh, much about that at, at the time? You know, so at the time we were being overwhelmed with threat intelligence, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, you know, all the threat feed buzzwords that are out there. Most of those products were from companies that were startups that had been around less than a year, and I bet we wouldn't see, or we won't see at RSA this year. You know that that, that market is so volatile. Uh, Variant was one of the few companies that was a established company over 15 years in business, where they had done a lot of work in automation and. Uh, intelligence handling. So uh, they put it together and had a, a pretty neat product. So we uh, we had a good interview back at RSA, but it was a little short because we were you know on the trade show floor. So this time we got uh, Asif to be able to spend some time with us and walk us through the 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 way the product works and and kind of see an interesting way to approach security in a increasingly volatile world. So check out the interview. It's, it's a good one. So we now have uh, Asif Ayal, who is the Senior Vice President of Enterprise Cyber Global Business at Verant. And Asif, thank you, much, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. So uh, let, let's go ahead and start with a little bit uh, for those who maybe didn't see the interview we did at RSA about um, who Verant is and, and what products and services you offer. Okay, great. So uh, <clears throat> Verant is a leader uh, provider of uh, security and intelligence solutions. Uh, our broad intelligence power security product portfolio is deployed in uh, close to 100 countries, uh, helping governments, critical infrastructure, and enterprise organizations uh, to protect against crime and uh, cyber threats. So uh, over uh, two decades, uh, our vast uh, experience, uh, we used our vast experience and domain expertise uh, in advanced intelligence uh, methodology to drive and design uh, our uh, intelligence-powered uh, security portfolio. And um, today, our uh, advanced analytics and machine learning technologies help uh, automate and accelerate uh, investigation while reducing dependencies on uh, cyber analysts and uh, data scientists something that, as we all know, is uh, very hard to come by. Definitely. Now, do you work with certain types of businesses or certain sizes of, of business, or are you uh, is, are your products good for re- really all types of, uh, of companies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so actually, uh, the range of our solution really varies, uh, and varies from uh, estate-level solutions, uh, where we take uh, responsibility uh, end-to-end over uh, everything that relates to the solution to uh, products that cater to uh, smaller companies where we usually work through uh, distributors and, and partners. So we go from selling the software only to our partners, uh, that, uh, the partners network that we are uh, that we have around the world to uh, a full-scale full scale solution where we take responsibilities uh, for everything, as I said. So 
Well, that's, so I guess we, we cover everything. That, that sounds like a good segue um, into the augmented cybersecurity uh, product we wanted to talk oh. about, because from what I've read about that on your site, it sounds like that is designed for uh, teams that are maybe trying to squeeze a little bit more out of a, a smaller team. So can, tell us a little bit about right. the augmented cybersecurity um, services you guys offer. Yeah, yeah. Well, in general, if I may say, as we go around the world, uh, we see more and more clients, whether on the enterprise side or on the government side, that are looking for someone that will provide them uh, a solution that is beyond just a point solution that will answer one specific point. What we manage to do is we really try to uh, sort uh, false positives from the real alerts. And once we do find those incidents that we think uh, um, might be relevant to look into, uh, we provide very good tools to be able to really go quickly uh, and understand the source of the problem. You know, I, I wanted to, to jump in on that because I know as we were doing interviews at, the, at RSA, and, and that was that was what January or February of 2017, because we're we're just about to go back out to RSA again next month, and yeah. um, it was it was almost overwhelming the amount of, of security companies that were there that were promoting some kind of machine learning or, or AI based threat detection and and information processing, uh, and it was easy to get kind of lost in the sea of all the different vendors right. that were in there. You mm -hmm. mentioned that you guys have been doing this not not for one year or five years, but you've been doing it for for 20 years for for two decades. And I know that your company actually, it kind of has two sides to it, right? There's the, the cybersecurity side, but there's also just the, the automation and, and that kind of piece. Um, are, you, are you leveraging all of that, all that experience in the automation field to make it where all this information is actually practical and actionable? Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, you're right. I mean, you're getting to the point where everybody is engaged with uh, – Data, data, data analytics of one sort and machine learning and so on and so forth. We've been collecting data from many, many years, and we faced the challenge of what to do with this data for more than one or two years, way before it became a buzzword that everybody is using and some are misusing. What is interesting, I think, when it comes to cybersecurity, and this is where I reference what you have heard in the last show that you just mentioned uh, last year is that what we do here with our system is uh, we take data from multiple sources that cover covering uh, the full kill chain, uh, deploying or employing uh, automatically investigation tools that are covering both the network and the endpoint. And all of that are, are grouped together, if you want, uh, in order for us to do the automatic investigation that we do with our um, uh, algorithm and come up with something that is very similar to what a human analyst will do uh, in a SOC. And I think that really separates us from um, point tools that are looking to deploy uh, data science and um, artificial intelligence within their own tool. Here we do it all across the kill chain. Now, if there's one thing I've noticed with a lot of these is that the, the more information you have, the better the tool is, right? You know, the, the tool can only be as good as the information you feed into it. So for, for customers that are leveraging a product like yours, that, that is analyzing all of this data, trying to identify not just, not just a, a single attack, but a whole pattern of traffic that identifies that attack, um, right. is that... Is that information just based on their companies? Like, like, so let's say we employed to hear it at IT Pro TV. So would it be based mm -hmm. on just the information passing on our network, or is that information shared amongst the customers, like in a, in a, a shared common database? Right. Well, <clears throat> there are a few answers to this question. First of all, uh, companies try to share data from different customers, and, and, and more and more companies are offering uh what they call uh, threat cloud services, where um, if you have a tool of a specific company, you also have access to um, the threat cloud of that same company, and 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 by doing so, you can learn from uh, from others using the same tool. 
there are some companies that are actually selling the service where you can get access into um, uh, threat intelligent cloud. Um, and, and this is something to be done by many. But what's unique here um, is that the investigation, the investigation is done by using multiple tools uh, that are relevant to your specific, uh, your specific network. So it is true that at a certain point in the investigation process, you might want to go to um, a cloud that will provide you information about what you might be looking at. But it is also very important to understand what's going on in your network in order for you to understand what is the source of um, um, of the attack um, and really to get to the bottom of it, understanding whether it's a true attack or it's something that uh, uh, that can be ignored. And if it is, what is the best way to remediate and how to do it fast? Now, you mentioned the uh, the kill chain, right? And when I think of tools like these, and I, I'm a network guy, so I think about how firewalls, they see all this data, it's all passing through them, it right. can be analyzed, but a lot of times right. the data is encrypted at that point, that makes it harder to analyze. Right. The data mm -hmm. makes it to the endpoint, the endpoint sees it unencrypted, so that's a great place to analyze right. it, but now it's a little more than what just a, a single appliance could see, right? You've got this mm -hmm. whole chain of devices right. that are involved. So where... Where does the uh, the variant threat protection fit in that model? Is this is this agent yeah. deployed on workstations? Does it tie into the firewalls? Where does it fit? Yeah. Okay. So so let me let me give you an answer. Uh, I will get to 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 the to the specific question you asked, but I want to uh, to to make one more point. <clears throat> First of all, theoretically, much uh, much can be stopped at the perimeter. And many of the prevention companies uh, will tell you that this is uh, this is where uh, the work should be done, and they might be right in many ways. The only problem is that it is very hard to maintain these prevention tools. And when we go to to clients and we run our POCs, um, often we find um, malware that should have not been. Uh, found inside the network and should have been stopped by the very good tools that have been installed on, on, on site. The problem is, as I mentioned, it's hard to keep up with all the changes. It's hard to uh, keep um, uh, to keep current um, the network, the, the 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 network, and therefore, first we look at the endpoint, obviously. So we look at um, uh, at all the endpoints, and we look at um, <clears throat> at what's coming into the organization. Uh, then uh, we look at uh, command and control traffic. So we look to see who is talking from my organization to outside of the organization. And the third point we are looking at, we're looking at uh, lateral movements within the network. And we feel that by looking at these three areas, you have pretty good handle on uh, many possible uh, possible attacks. Um, and, uh, and therefore, we chose to cover all those. And by doing so, we feel that we are fairly well equipped. And I'm a little uh, hesitant here because, as you know, there is always something more that you can do. But we feel fairly well equipped to uh, to cover different attacks um, without knowing ahead of time, you know, what will be the attack that will be that, that will happen on on your network. I know one big challenge that a lot of companies are facing is that the the endpoints, which used to be pretty consistent, they really aren't consistent anymore. You know, you used to just be able to assume. Hey, that company is going to have mostly Windows workstations. That that's what right. they have, and so we we can build an right. agent that can defend that, and, and that's it. But now, so many people have switched to mobile platforms for a lot of their computing. Right. And uh, how how are you guys handling that? I mean, do you just say information is information, or, or are there obstacles you're having to overcome to to handle those devices? Well, I don't want to. Uh, I mean, definitely there are areas where uh, where we have not uh, we have not covered, and 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 I think that goes exactly to your previous question, where uh, there is always something else that you can do, and attackers always, uh, if if they really want to get in, you know, they are 
they they just need to they can focus and and find the vulnerability within your organization and the organization becoming more and more uh, more and more complicated. And for that reason, while we deploy, um, we use different um, different uh, detection techniques on the endpoint. Um, we add the additional tools that I just mentioned. And by doing so, in case uh, we missed at the endpoint, we have chances to find it, you know, in the other areas as well. Yeah, so, so building on that, I, I know I, I'm kind of focused on this whole theme of detection, right? We want to stop the the, the attack before it, it actually gets to any sensitive data. But yeah. attackers are creative. They come up with new things. We have strange devices on the network. So if there is a compromise, if somebody does manage to, to get through our defenses mm -hmm. and, and access data, um, with the with the variant threat protection, are we able to to basically create like a historical chain? Are we able to see what was accessed and kind of uh, see what yeah. that damage was? Exactly. So so that, that's 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 in in many ways you know where where we focus. So detection is important, and um, um, but uh, we also think that um, the the investigation is is a very important part of it. And here, what we do is we have both. Um, forensic, uh, network forensic and endpoint forensic tools to really try and get the information uh, that are needed in order to uh, find how the attack really worked. And um, in our system, not only that, that our system will just show you all the evidence leading to, um, uh, to what we think the attack uh, or the way that the attack looked like, but actually, we put it on a timeline, and you can see exactly what happened over time. And all that information is actually brought to the analyst. And this is, in many ways, actually kind of uh, really coming or kind of uh, coming from from our uh, uh, previous uh, or, or from our many years of experience on actually on the intelligence side, where you always have to have all the evidence in order for you to have good investigation. So. Uh, to your question, yes, we do provide all the evidence that are part of the investigation, and we actually put it on a timeline so the analyst can really try and can really understand how the attack looked like. Uh, you know, uh, the reason I'm asking um, is we're getting a lot of questions from our viewers and, and from companies that are out there because uh, GDPR in the EU is kicking in here yes. in May. And yeah. one of the clauses in there states that for a company that's handling data for European or EU citizens, uh, yeah. if you've had a data breach, you have to mm -hmm. disclose that to your customers in three days, mm -hmm. three days. Yeah. Now, yeah. if I know there's a compromise, reaching out to people and saying, hey, there was a compromise, that, that's not a big deal. You, three days, you can right. do that. But yeah. to understand what was compromised in mm -hmm. just three days, that's really, really hard. So exactly. you don't want to come out and say, well, we think all of our data was compromised. And then two weeks later, you find out, well, actually, it was just this mailing list or just this small right. percentage of customers. So a yeah. solution like this, because it's, I mean, it's, it's always running, right? It's always watching. Yeah. So once yes. you detect it, how long does it take to figure out how, how much data was accessed or whatever? Is that instantaneous? Well, in fact, what happened is that, you know, the system is looking at everything that's going on, Okay. Um, and I think uh, to to uh, to answer your question, I think we need to go one step back. In many organizations, what we know and what we find out is that the breach might have been detected. It's just that there is so much data to look at that analysts either did not see, um, uh, just didn't have the time to review the, the to review the, the alerts or took time to get to where it is and then to look for, um, to look for, um, um, or, or to, to, to make the investigation. What happens here, because much of what the system does is, is, is automated, the first thing is that you're looking at, the system is looking at all the alerts coming from the engines, which is something that is uh, very difficult to do if you don't automate the whole process. And then the next thing is that uh, you do have these, um, uh, these forensic tools that really provides you quickly the information. So you don't have to go uh, from uh, one department to another, from one tool to the, to the other. 
in order to really get to the, to the bottom of, of, uh, uh, of the problem. But in fact, the investigation takes minutes to hours. And that really speaks into the GDPR uh, directive that is going to be in effect in Europe. Yes. And, and that's one of the big reasons why I wanted to interview you guys again, because we, we, we did get a chance to talk at RSA last year, but GDPR was, I mean, you know, it was 18 months yeah. away and, and people weren't thinking that way. But now people are really starting to look at that and say, ooh, that three-day requirement, that is a hard one yeah. to meet. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you're trying to gather this data by hand, look at look at organizations like Equifax, right, where Equifax had a breach. We all heard about it. We all heard about it last year. And then mm -hmm. just, what was it, just last week, they yeah. came out and said, well, actually, we were a little wrong. It's even more data was accessed than we originally thought. Um, right. that, that would be in violation of GDPR if they didn't do the, the notification properly. So I think right. we're going to see, as, as, long as, as long as GDPR stands in its current form, we're going to see solutions like this not become optional, almost become required. Like there's, there's no right. way you can meet your obligations without it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the visibility across the entire network is also key for that. Um, so absolutely, yeah. Now we just have to convince the EU government to pay for it, and, uh, <laughs> and then it'll become easy. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we find out that nothing becomes easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, as long yeah. as it doesn't end up like the little cookie banners at the top of every page yeah. now that, you know, serves no real purpose. That's but pretty <laughs> annoying. Yeah. Every site does it. Can we just uh, accept that and move forward? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Asif, uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there is there anything else you wanted to mention or um, just let people know where, where they can find out more about Barrent? Well, um, I think um, our uh, we, we really overhauled our, uh, our website and there's a lot of information that uh, we provide there. Um, Obviously, um, I really encourage uh, any interest, interested party to go into, uh, uh, into our website and, um, and uh, just see a short video. And I think that uh, uh, that video will just, um, <clears throat> will just show the users um, really the, the values of, of, of what we do. Uh, as we go around the world, uh, we see more and more uh, users that are telling us that they are at the point where they really need something that will integrate the many pieces that are needed in order to cover um, to cover the um, the different threats that they are facing, um, and the automation is really solving a big issue. And the the issue is um, that they can either do more with less, meaning with uh, the given resources they have, they're able to look at uh, more alerts than, than uh, they would have uh, be able to if they didn't have uh, the automation that we provide. Yeah, and I, I know in this interview we, we focused on the security side, but you, you know you guys do a lot more than just security, and, and automation of systems is something that any large enterprise goes through that you can continue growing employees, but your risk of something going wrong increases. So for you guys, it puts you in a great position because now not only can you help automate systems, but you can integrate your security solution into that automation. That's a that's a big win-win for, for any large organization. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, uh, that's, uh, and, and I definitely think that, you know, uh, organizations are looking for companies with multiple capabilities that can provide them with... Uh, uh, with a bigger piece of, of, uh, of the solution that is needed. Sounds good. Well, uh, for those of you that do want to uh, look on that website, it's, uh, it's more the cyber intelligence side of the Varent site, so it's cis.varent.com. Uh, and will we be seeing you uh, out at RSA or, or at least Varent at RSA this year? Yeah, we'll see. We'll, 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 I'm not sure yet. Sounds good. Yeah, we still got a, a little over a month, I think. So, uh, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll definitely uh, look for you guys there. But... Uh, I'm not sure in what, in what capacity. I mean, that's, sure. that's it. That's Sounds good. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today. Really appreciate that yeah. and getting a, a little deeper look at, uh, at exactly what you guys offer and some of the, uh, the, the unique things there. That, that was very cool to see. And for those of you watching at home, stay tuned. We've got more of the IT Pro TV podcast coming up right now. All right. That was a great interview with Asif all the way from uh, Israel. So thank you uh, for joining us for that and, and taking the time and uh, 
it was pretty cool to learn about that. And I don't know if we'll see them at RSA. It sounds like maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, we'll have a lot more of those kind of interviews, I think, in the next uh, few weeks as it happens. Actually, that's that's in April. So mm-hmm. um, so kind of keep an eye out for that as we uh, uh, we head out there and we talk to a lot of the folks uh, at RSA. But, Don, you ready to jump into the news? Absolutely. Let's kick things off. We've right, got uh, my my favorite topic. We're going to start with uh, mobile technology. Yeah, and and I know. So you're a guy that that switches back and forth. It seems between um, Apple and uh, Android devices, and not necessarily um, just because you want to switch back and forth, but it just <laughs> seems you get frustrated with one or the other. And the first one we've got here is um, basically the leaked information that everyone's looking for uh, from that Galaxy S9. Um, someone that says got their hands in it, according to what is this BGR.com, and uh, and they've spilled the, the the secrets and and Don has broken down all those secrets oh for us and, and made a, a stunning determination, which is which is um, that basically you could take Galaxy S8, scratch out the bottom part of the eight, and make it into a nine, and that's what you've got. Um, Samsung's taking a a buy year on this one and just saying. Uh, let, let's do some minor tweaks and updates, and that's it. I, the the article, I, I was kind of excited to see it because, like, oh, we, we've got the secrets. All right, maybe, maybe they're rolling out some new processor technology or whatever, but this is definitely an incremental update. I I alternate phones every year. So uh, I'll go Apple for a year, and then I'll usually go Samsung for a year. I might try other vendors. Um, and so I, I go back and forth between Android and iOS each year. And I, I do that because in... In, in my world, I have to deal with both types, and so it's important for me to know them. So I'm I'm on a Android year right now, and this, well, I guess it depends on how you look at it, but 2018 for me will be a iOS year, so I got to switch over to a, a iOS phone at some point. Um, and everybody's announcing new phones. There's supposed to be new technologies. Last year, the big craze was this edge-to-edge screen stuff, which I don't know about you guys out there in TV land, but I think is a bunch of crap. <laughs> and, and they put these curved edges on the phone that are so annoying because you can't you can't get a screen protector on there. It's hard to use the scroll bars on the side, but they've decided we have to have that. Uh, the FCS9, it just continues that whole thought process. Uh, doesn't really add anything crazy new. If you already have an S8, there's not really a point to go to the S9. Um, and even with this leak where they, they reveal all the features, there's really not much to it. And they even say in here, like, uh, let's see, where is it here? Uh, that the S9 and S9 Plus are nearly identical to the ones they replace the Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus. So not really much in the way of change there. So if you were excited about something new and earth-shattering, unless Samsung rolls something in, there's still no under-the-screen fingerprint reader, uh, you know, still no, uh, not even a competitor to Google's portrait mode feature, which on the Pixels, the portrait mode feature is awesome. It almost makes you think the Pixel's a good phone. But... Uh, uh, you know, it's it's not there's not really anything that's uh, you know super flagship here. Does Samsung do the the S kind of thing that that Microsoft does? Do they ever release a um, a, a mid year eight basically uh, like a? Uh... Not really. Um, usually their model is that they release a a main one in in two sizes, so like the S eight and S eight plus or S seven S seven plus. Um, then they release a, a Note. The Galaxy Note is usually kind of the, the six-month type interval. Um, they used to release the Edge phones, but those are gone now because they're all Edge phones. And then sometimes they release Minis and Actives, right? Uh, the Minis are smaller phones, which I appreciate, but they haven't released one of those in about four years. Uh, and then the Active is one that has a flat screen, which let me tell you, that is a selling point for me right now, uh, but also has a hardened uh, or rubberized case to make it more damage resistant. Which when they catch fire, the, the rubberized case smells it's nice. a lot more. Yeah, so, it's nice. No, I don't like the, the <laughs> uh, I like the more natural uh, burning of the S, was it the S7 that did that? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Um, the Note 7. That's Note 7, was, yeah. thank you. Uh, but, well, Samsung obviously has uh, has spent their time not working on the phone um, to work on the largest um, SAS SSD uh, drive, which is 30.72 terabytes. Uh, and that is what was just announced. Uh, this is on Tom's hardware. So, um, obviously, you know, we'll give them a pass on the S9 because they, they spent the time making this. And, and Don just always gets excited about new storage. <laughs> I think we talked about SSD cards. Uh, or Yeah, the, oh, it was the SD, SD cards, cards yeah. thank you, mm-hmm. uh, and micro SD and all that stuff the other day. But now we've, we've got... You know, 
back in the back in the spinning disk days, right? Uh, hard drives would always start to increase, and then they would hit some kind of theoretical limit and stop for a while. So for a while, an 850 meg disk was the biggest you could get, and then for a while, it was a two gig disk was the biggest you can get, and then it started going up, and and you'd hit these thresholds, and it felt like for a while that we were kind of going backwards because spinning disks were at two terabyte, three terabyte, four terabyte for cheap drives, but SSDs for the same price would be 128 gigs or 256 gigs. So I, I like to see that they're starting to push bigger sizes out now because that's going to drive down the prices of some of the other ones. But I didn't expect to see one this big. So this is a 30 terabyte SSD. And it's hard to see here in the picture. The Tom's Hardware team was there. They, they took the picture and uh, you can sort of see it there. It's the size of a five and a quarter inch hard drive. So this is not something that would be in a laptop. This would be more like server or SAN type uh, environment. But to have that all in such a small form factor, you could build out some kind of crazy array and uh, you could just have petabytes of information in much smaller space. Heat management is always the big challenge with these. Heat management and then just the cost of the memory. So this stuff will come consumer side usually within a handful of years. So maybe in the next three to four years, we'll have 10, 20, 30 terabyte drives in our in our home PC. Well, what amused me about the picture on this one is um, I always think back to the, those shots of them unloading um, the the memory off of a, an airplane um, when it was, you know, look, it's two megs of, of RAM and it's, you know, the size of, a, of, of an airplane cargo hold. Uh, when I looked at this one, and if, if you can go back up to the top picture, Dunn, it, uh, I thought that white box, uh, uh, at first I was like, wow, okay, that's a little bit bigger than I expect uh, for 30 <laughs> terabytes. I, I would have thought they could get smaller. And then I realized there's a little small thing on top there, so I, I am now impressed um, by that. But uh, you know, it shows them the benefit of the doubt I was willing to give them that uh, the 30 terabytes in, in that yeah. big space would work. That technology has evolved a lot, and it just keeps going. I mean, it used to be how much they could fit on those metal platters, which they just had physical limits to what they could get on there. Now it's how many memory chips they can fit in that box. I bet if we cracked that open, it is just packed full of little memory chips that they've you know put in line to get all that memory in there. Now, I do have to wonder about throughput on something like this. The more of those chips you add, you can only move so much data in and out. And there comes a point where it's better to have more smaller drives than one giant drive. So um, as these continue to get bigger, we'll probably see some kind of new bus technology come out to replace PCIe or NVMe or whatever uh, bus it is that we're plugging into. All right, next we want to uh, switch gears to Microsoft. Uh, they have finally documented the limitations of Windows 10 on ARM. And uh, we've been talking a lot about chips recently, too, with this whole mm -hmm. Spectre meltdown thing, um, which I'm supposed to drink because we said Spectre and uh, meltdown, yeah. I think, in this <laughs> uh, episode. But uh, so the, these ARM chips, uh, they're able to run Windows 10's kind of limited version on there, and they've spec'd out all the limits uh, that you have now. And so uh, anything stand out to you, Don, is... Um, anything anything you weren't aware of coming into this? or You know, um, well, most of it we weren't aware of, but I, I think a lot of it I, I at least assumed. Uh, you know, when the Windows RT tablets came out, um, oh, when was that, like five with or six years surface, ago? Yeah, with the original, original Surface, yeah. With the original Surface. That was the first time that they were really pushing Windows on an ARM platform. And if you don't know about that, like the, the ARM processors are very different than the traditional Intel and AMD processors that we use. Uh, Intel and AMD, they either use the Intel x86 feature set or they use the AMD uh, AMD 64 feature set. Uh, so 64 would be the 64-bit version. ARM is completely different, so it's a whole different feature set. So if you have programs that are written to run on x86 or x64, they, they don't run on ARM. And if you have a program written for ARM, they don't run the other way around. So when those Windows RT tablets came out, there really just weren't apps to be able to run on them. So if you loved Windows in its basic installed form, those tablets were great. But if you loved any program ever <laughs> that's not installed by default, then it was just not not any good. Uh, but Microsoft stuck with it, and they kept saying, you know, we're, we're still going to stick with this platform. They killed off Windows RT, but they announced Windows 10 on ARM. And so a lot of people, myself included, were wondering, like, all right, well, is it going to be like with Windows RT where you could only run apps that were in the Microsoft App Store and, and so on? Uh, and so they, they did come out, and uh, Paul Thorat got this information uh, and found that there's, there's limitations. And 
some of these, I, I feel like everybody should have just assumed, right? So 64-bit apps will not work. Okay, well, when you say a 64-bit app, that's the AMD 64 feature set, which ARM cannot emulate. Like, ARM is just not, not powerful enough to do that, and it, it, it should need to be, right? So those aren't going to work. Uh, x86, there actually is some emulation that it can do to run it. It's going to run those things slowly, but the big thing they were highlighting here is it can't use x86 drivers. Well, that, again, should be understood. If you're running a 64-bit version of Windows, it's not going to use a 32-bit driver either, uh, at least not without problems, right? Um, certain classes of apps will not run. Uh, a lot of programs aren't a single application. They have embedded applications or extensions, plugins. Uh, a lot of those will not work. Uh, and they're just saying here, like, shell extensions and stuff. Those are, are going to be things that give you a problem. So most of that I, I didn't see a problem with. The, the one I was waiting on was finding out whether or not they were going to support Hyper-V, and they've announced no Hyper-V. Um, technically, I, I thought, hey, if it's on an ARM processor, you should be able to run Hyper-V and have ARM-based VMs. There's no reason not to. But uh, apparently Microsoft either didn't have time to test or just didn't, didn't see it as a valuable feature and, and left that off. So if you have no Hyper-V then there's probably no virtualization assistance built into these ARM processors. So that, uh, that kills off the ability to run VMs. A lot of end users probably don't care about that, but we're seeing more and more technologies that rely on that, even container technologies. So these tablets, I think, are, are being positioned to be more like Chromebooks, where you'll really just run this one subset of applications and that's it. So that, that's about it. Uh, otherwise, it was all pretty, pretty run-of-the-mill. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask if this is kind of a a Chromebook uh, competitor. So it sounds like maybe something in an office space where um, you could have certain office personnel that are just doing basic word processing on uh, in, in Microsoft Office already, um, web browsing, email, those kinds of things. They'd be fine with a, a machine like that as long as they don't have to you know, run specific types of software yeah. that wouldn't work. You know, ARM's two big selling points are it's cheaper and it's less power hungry, right? So if you need just a cheap laptop that you can run for 12 hours on battery, an ARM processor is going to suit you better than an Intel. Uh, and that's that's why you see ARM in darn near every mobile phone and tablet out there. All right, makes sense. Well, speaking of, uh, well, I guess this is Google now that we're going to be talking about, so it's, it's not speaking of at all. Um, but uh, in this article on The Verge uh, that we found, Google is removing the view image button from search results to make pictures harder to steal. I can already think of several other ways to steal um, the images, <laughs> but uh, I guess this is probably the step that um, that most people would use to just uh, uh, go ahead and, and see that image and try to steal it. But So... You know, I noticed this one, not from the news article, but because I actually use that feature a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to put a new wallpaper on your computer, you do a Google image search, you find the image, and right from the Google image search, you can just tell it to view the image. Not, not to go to the website that's hosting it or, or whatever, but just to pull the image up, and then you could set it as your wallpaper, right? Well, that feature went away, and that was annoying, right? I thought, well, why did Google remove that? That's dumb. There was another article out at the same time, or a news story that was out at the same time, stating that uh, Google finally signed a deal with Getty Images. Did you see this one? I hadn't, no. Um, so I, I don't have an article to reference it, but uh, they said uh, Getty Images, up until last week, has been excluded from Google Image search results. Uh, mm -hmm. Getty wouldn't allow them to do it. They said it's just too easy to steal our pictures. And so they did this press release last week. Getty and Google finally reached an agreement, so now Getty images will be in Google image search results. Meanwhile, they removed the view image feature. And while they're treating it as two separate stories, it's the same story. What's going on is Getty said, hey, if you want to put our images in your search results, you've got to get rid of this feature because it's too easy for people to download our licensed photos, and they need to come to our site and buy the license or at least give us ad revenue for viewing it. So... Google did this to appease Getty. It's not about, like, customer service. It's not our customers weren't using the feature. or Google doesn't even care about the piracy. They just wanted to have more search results. And if killing this feature off powered it, then that's what they did. Well, well a couple of things there. First of all, I know that there's a lot, um, a lot of fuss from webmasters that are saying, hey, you know, this person is getting this content from our website without ever having to come to our site and see our ads and, and mm -hmm. uh, us make money. So I think part of it is that, too, that, hey, we know you're going to steal it. We'd rather you steal it from our 
site directly than um, stealing it directly from the image search and and not uh, giving us that click that we need. Um, but another thing, when when you were saying that about Getty, uh, it, it uh, reminded me of something that I know Bill Gates had had owned. Um, well, I, I was thinking Getty for a minute, but I'd, I'd looked it up. So he owned Corbis, uh, and then he just uh, he sold it off to um, China's equivalent of Getty Images. So I was wondering if that had anything to do with it mm. not being in Google. But uh, no, totally different thing. But that was back in uh, 2015 for a uh, small investment he had in Corbis. But you know, speaking of Bill Gates, did did you see him on the news this morning? No, I I saw the the ticker, <laughs> and I want to go watch the video. Apparently, he doesn't know how much anything costs. He was on the was Ellen, Ellen show, yeah. which I, I never watched, but uh, the, I guess they do the sure. prices right. Uh, guess the price of groceries game. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, billionaires. Yeah. He's a billionaire, so I'm, I'm I'm certain he doesn't go to the grocery yeah. store. It, it, it's like when um, George Bush Senior went to the grocery store and and uh, didn't know how the scanner worked at the cash register. <laughs> That's so that they don't go grocery shopping, yeah. but uh, it does sound pretty entertaining. He, whether you like or hate Bill Gates, he's got a good sense of humor, and yeah. uh, and he, he takes this up. And pretty I'm well. sure he knows. Yeah, I've got to go back and watch that. I, and I, I was loving to all the, um, the some of the politicians during this whole tax thing that's been going on in the United States, saying, "Oh, you know, we've got this extra thousand dollars in your pocket now, so you can go out and buy a new car, or you know, <laughs> put a down payment down on a home." And it's like you have no idea how th- much things cost. Yeah. <laughs> thousand uh, dollars exactly mm. yeah i'll just i can retire now. i can I use that to pay my other taxes yeah exactly <laughs> i'll pay the state taxes with my savings uh all right um sticking with google though now uh we've got this fun article from securityaffairs.co um so google has uh had discovered a security uh flaw in the edge browser from microsoft and I guess they, they went through the normal process, gave them the 90 days, um, that notified them, and nothing happened. So they went ahead and disclosed it, which yeah. sounds like uh, probably the right thing to do. You know, and it's not even normal, like 90 days. It, usually they do 60 days. Really? Like, here okay. they, you know, they gave a little bit longer. Um, Microsoft criticized Google last year uh, about a, a flaw that Google identified and they they said they didn't give Microsoft enough time, right? And and they, they disclosed it without going through proper channels. So this time, Google followed the proper channels. They said, here's this flaw. And this has happened more than once where Microsoft either looks at the flaw and says, it's not really practical for somebody to implement this, and so we're going to ignore it. Or they just look at it and they say, wow, this would require a code base change that is so significant that there's no way we can do it in 90 days, and we just have to put that off. Now, it's easy to criticize Microsoft for that, but if you look at what happened with Intel, and get your drink ready, Meltdown Inspector, right? <laughs> Where they they rushed the fixes out in, in the 60-day window that they had, right? Which became a 50-day window, thanks to the register. Um, but they, they rushed them out, and then what happened? Now we're having to roll back updates because, like, the, the Type 2 variant one screws everything up in your computer reboots. So with Microsoft, I'm sure, you know, they were either working on it and testing it and just didn't get it done, or maybe they're ignoring it. Maybe they feel like it's not one that can be practically applied, but we don't have a, a lot of information there. Um, but, you know, Google's quick to point it out. My assumption is they said, oh, a, a flaw with, with Edge? Let's put that in the room where we have the stacks of flaws with, with the Edge browser. And... Uh, there's someone in there under all those papers, but uh, yeah, I I have found in my experience Microsoft's Edge is the most secure web browser I've ever used because I never open it. <laughs> and if you never open it, and you never go to a web page. I mean, it is rock there's solid no security. You can't running on it. You've got nobody nothing. can capture the traffic. I mean, it's a security model. Yeah, that's like smart. I, I don't. Whoever thought of it, it's it's <laughs> brilliant. That's that's ingenious. <laughs> Uh, well, I can tell you who didn't use that then would be FedEx. Uh, we've got a FedEx <laughs> data breach. Uh, but this is actually, uh, they've got their stuff in AWS, apparently. And so uh, from what I understand, there was something about a password. Is that what happened with AWS, that something wasn't protected that should have been? Yes. And this is something that we keep seeing popping up over and over again. Uh, Amazon S3 is so incredibly easy to use. And if you need to stick a bunch of documents somewhere and have a lot of storage, you can fire up a, an S3 bucket in no time. The storage is cheap. For, for most regions, it's like $0.10 cents per gig per month. So it doesn't take much, uh, and you can chuck it there. A lot of these companies are using contractors, and the contractors will put information in an S3 bucket, and they won't secure it. Because with an S3 bucket, you're just like one check mark away from making it publicly readable to everyone. 
And when you do an S3 bucket, it has an endpoint name that's available everywhere, right? Um, so that's what's going on here is there was a FedEx S3 bucket that was not secured with a password at all. It was public. So it was flagged to be open to the public, uh, and it contained uh, a lot of information. It had 119,000 scanned documents. And so if you sifted through it, there was all sorts of stuff like passports, driver's license, uh, and so, you know, personally identifiable information, yeah. some things that can't be changed. So that's a that's a big deal. FedEx isn't the first company to do this. There have been several others. We actually reported on some at the, the end of the year, but every week, um, there's actually a search engine. I can't remember its name now. It's like the uh, Buck search engine. Let me see if I can Sounds find amazing. it here real quick. Yeah, is somebody somebody made a uh, a search engine? Uh, let's see, is this it? That would let you do a search because what they found is that an S three bucket, every S three bucket has a public endpoint name, and it has to be unique across the entire world. And so they can just sit there and like brute force the uh, the the bucket names, so just roaming through until they find them. And if they find them, they can quickly test to see if they're open or not. And if they are, then you can browse in and you can see all the files. And uh, here it is. It's called uh, Buck Hacker, uh, thebuckhacker.com. If you're bored, you can check it out. Um, so um, if you go to thebuckhacker.com, uh, you can just go and you can do a search. And they tell you here, enter something to search for, and you know maybe I'll do UPS, right? Uh, oh, I didn't find anything there. FedEx. I know that was FedEx. Yeah. Oh, they're recommending a file extension, so maybe PDF. There we go. So it uh, found a couple of things. Um, S3FS-public. That sounds public. Um, doesn't seem to be... seems like that would have returned a heck of a lot more. There we go. But, you know, you can go through and you can do searches like this, and it'll reach out there, and, and they're just trying to find buckets that people have left open. There's other utilities out there that do the same thing, that scrape across it. And so if you're deploying in the cloud, and this is not, this is not Amazon's fault. This is... If people deploy in the cloud, they need to take the time to learn how the technology works. And don't assume that your cloud technology is secure. Assume that it isn't yep. and figure out what you need to do to secure it. So these S3 buckets, they, uh, you know, they're, they're just going to continue being a problem. I just want to say hats off uh, to you for searching for JPEGs on, on the Internet that is comprised mostly of pornography and uh, having the guts to you know, do that on, on a live show. That's I, a good point. I'm, I'm impressed. And, I have, uh, uh, I was waiting for thumbnails to start c coming up, but uh, sadly, I had that same thought. But this uh, the search engine doesn't seem to be very powerful. So yeah, I, uh, you, you really sold the search engine there, and uh, <laughs> really, you can find three PDFs. I on, know it's on the book hacker seems unusual, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, one more hacking story here. Well, I guess I think we have. Well, the next one's kind of a hacking story, but this this one's definitely a hacking story, and this is one that frightens me uh, very much. So we we've talked. Um, well, I, I guess the world has talked about the self-driving car and how that's the future, and we'll all just sit back and read a book or um, or watch a movie and uh, and get from point A to point B. Uh, well, now they're hacking our cars. And if you think about it, that is a potentially uh, catastrophic kind of hack, um, not today, but in 10 years and 15 years when everyone on the interstate is relying on their cars to communicate with one another uh, through the internet, and they're just going crazy. All right, so um, you had a similar thought that I did when I read the headline, yeah. but if you dig into the article, it's actually way different than what you think. Oh. So uh, so, so you can rest easy. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, when I saw this, Tesla's cloud servers hacked, that was my first thought was, hey, all these Teslas are cloud-connected. So somebody got in there and, and, one and in found space. a way to mess with that. And Even the one in space. <laughs> the one in space. Yeah. They made it take a right turn. It's oh, my gosh, here. yeah. Um, so... <laughs> You know, what, what kind of impact velocity you could generate? Well, anyhow, so <laughs> spinning the tires on it, or, yeah. So yeah. I, that's what I thought, right? M much like you. But if you read, um, they say Tesla cloud servers hacked by cryptojackers, right? Wait a minute, cryptojackers. I don't know what those are. All right, cryptojackers are a new type of hacker. I, I say new. The last three or four weeks, they've been kind of all over the place, where they break into your systems for the purpose of Bitcoin mining or cryptocurrency mining, right? Now, as soon as I started reading this, I started laughing because um, over at IT Pro TV, I, I teach a lot of cloud shows. And so I, I've, I've done AWS shows and Microsoft Azure shows. And, and one of the first things I always do is talk about how to control your price, you know, how much you're paying, how much your spend is every month. And I talk about how important it is 
to monitor your spend because a hacker could get into your account, they could spin up a thousand servers and start Bitcoin mining. And I always say it as a joke, like, you know, somebody could do that. So you got to make sure you set a, a maximum deployment threshold and all of that. Well, apparently, I usually say it jokingly. I didn't think anybody would actually do it. Um, People are listening to you. Two things happen. Yeah, either you know, somebody listened to me or they had the same idea on their own, so I'm not brilliant. You know, anybody can think of this stuff. Uh, and then two, no one at Tesla has ever watched one of my courses. <laughs> so um, so they didn't have limits. They, they didn't have a maximum spending limit or even AWS does this thing where they hold you to 20 instances per region by default. And if you want more than 20 instances per region, you have to open up a support ticket and you can move it to another number or they can remove it all together. But if they remove it all together, you're held liable if somebody breaks in and does something crazy. And that's what happened here. So the crypto jackers managed to break into Tesla's cloud accounts. And whoops, I'm no longer able to master my Zoom. And, uh, and once they got in, they just started firing up instances and crypto mining. And so they started mining Bitcoin. And that means that they didn't, they didn't care about uh, whether they could get private information or control cars. They were just like, you know, how much Monero or Bitcoin or yeah. Ethereum or whatever they could mine. And in AWS, they have tons of systems that are available that, uh, uh, that have GPUs in them. And you can actually do some decent Bitcoin mining there, but it costs you money. In this case, it didn't cost the hackers money. It yeah. cost Tesla money. But uh, the main way they were able to get into this was that Tesla uses Kubernetes. And their Kubernetes console, it didn't have a password. It, it just, and this isn't like a it had the default password. It had, here, we'll find it right in here. It had no password protection enabled for the system. And so once they were in, they could use Kubernetes to launch all these containers and start Bitcoin mining. So if their intent had been uh, other than just Bitcoin mining or, or cryptocurrency mining, they could have potentially gotten a lot more information then. They could have. And and now what they're saying, uh, the, the people that are investigating this and looking into it, they're saying that even though that might not have been their intention, it does look like they accessed other documents mm. that were in there. So now they have to treat it as a breach. And you know GDPR goes active in May. That's the, the new regulation in yeah. Europe. If there's a breach like this, Tesla, under the new rules, would have to disclose that information to anybody who could have been affected within three days of determination. So that means that they would have three days to figure out what information was accessed. And if they can't figure it out, then they just have to tell everybody, like, hey, you're, you were hacked. So not, not good for the company. Um, somewhat comedic for me. Yeah, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm glad it didn't happen, but I also kind of think it would be funny if there were... Tesla's just out there now mining Bitcoin as they're driving down the road, but it sounds like it was more their computer systems and not the actual cars. But yeah. you know, why is my car running slow this week? Because oh, it's, it's found <laughs> it's seven busy. Bitcoin. Yeah, it's busy great. mining Bitcoins. Uh, all right, so next up, uh, the last in our, in our security um, uh, segment here, uh, the SEC is telling executives not to trade while investigating security incidents. So... Um, I mean, basically, so let's just take Tesla as an example. If they were uh, under investigation or investigating their own thing, they're basically saying, hey, don't go out and sell all your stock now because you know this is going to happen. Uh, there, there's going to be a drop when once this is announced. This is this is in direct reaction to the Equifax breach from last year. Okay. So um, remember when Equifax announced their breach, initially they came out and they said, oh, you know, 100,000 accounts were accessed, and then it was... Uh, maybe a million, and then uh, maybe two million, yeah. and then it just keeps getting bigger all. and bigger. Maybe all. Well, after that first announcement, that very week, three executives sold large amounts of stock, yeah. including the CIO, the, the chief information officer. Um, they sold a lot of stock. And people looking at it said, wait a minute, you just had this big breach. You just announced it. You just sold this stock. You knew the stock was going to go down after announcing the breach. You, you know, you're, you're pulling a fast one on us. Um, now, apparently, they had filed the sell paperwork months in advance. But now that the researchers have been in there, they found where they knew about the breach months in advance. Mm -hmm. Like before they, I mean, it, it had been four or five months before they actually notified uh, everybody about it. So the odds are they knew about the breach and they chose to get out there and, and sell their stock before the public found out about it. That's pretty shady stuff. In my opinion, you should get arrested for that. Yeah, you should uh, go to Martha Stewart jail. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. learn how to fold bed sheets or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's insider trading, really. I mean, they have information the public doesn't, and they're trading on that. So that that shouldn't be allowed. Um, the SEC, unfortunately, uh, they don't have a crystal ball. I guess they can't see someone's intent. So instead of making a law on this, they just kind of put out a notice and they said, "Look, if you're investigating a breach, don't sell stock, or we're going to investigate you." Uh, so that's what they did. I, I wish they would have come up with something a little more than a advisement, which is all this is. Um, but they at least came out and said it. Well, um, that's pretty silly. And our next story <laughs> is pretty silly as well. We've, we've actually got two. I don't know. I'm going to put the first one as silly and the second one is just downright stupid. Um, but uh, this is one where you really don't have to go much past the headline, uh, which is from The Independent. Uh, and it says, Apple repeatedly calls emergency services after multiple employees injured walking into glass panes at new headquarters. So, of course, you've got the, what do they call it, the spaceship? Is that? Yeah, the, yeah, the spaceship, so or it's, the it's mothership, big, I don't know. Big glass building, and uh, you've got people in there with, uh, everyone's got a phone or a tablet, and they're just walking around looking at those, as as you'd hope, you know, they're doing their jobs. Uh, but I, I don't know if they're just leading with their heads when they're walking, but they're they're just, uh, they're walking into the glass. Uh, because it's beautiful, beautiful glass, <laughs> apparently, and uh, and they're getting injured. So yeah, the the building. I mean, it, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous building. Have you seen yeah. pictures of it? And they they wanted to make sure that you could see all of the the trees and stuff around it. They have these vista views and all that. Not Windows Vista, and sure, the, it's just large amounts of glass walls. There's entire hallways where the left and right walls are entirely glass. And uh, you, know, you have this big exterior view from pretty much anywhere. And the glass, it's clear. And if you've ever seen like a bird fly into a sliding glass window, that's what's happening here. People are just walking right into it, uh, which which hurts if you've ever done it. I it mean, it, you yeah. smack your nose right on the screen. Well, if it happens once or twice, then it's just a joke. But apparently this is happening regularly. Um, the the story that I saw, and I, I don't know how much fact is behind this, but um, in the that's not important. Yeah, I know in the pattern of U.S. news, I'm going to perpetuate it anyway. <laughs> um, they said that employees started sticking post-it notes on the glass, and that uh, management had instructed security to remove those at any time they found them because it broke the aesthetic of the building. Like they wanted it to look pretty, but I think, you know, would it be that hard to fog the glass a little bit or put a stripe on it or something? But you know, I'm sure Johnny I have said. Uh, he'd rather put a headphone jack on it than put a stripe, sure. yeah. and so they're back to just glass. Yeah, and it sounds like it's glass within glass um, because it says the um, the workspaces are known as pods, and they also have glass uh, walls and doors, so you can see through from your office to the outside. So not everyone has a an external-facing office, but you've at least got uh, um, that view still from your office. So I, I could see this, this being an issue. Yeah, and this says... Um, on the first day that the park opened, uh, this report says seven people injured themselves, and uh, it, it makes a good point that that's just the people who reported it. Um, I think if I if I walked into the glass, um, you know, maybe it's my first day at, at, at Apple, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and keep that one to myself. But uh, were you able to find some pictures there, Don? I know you're... you're yeah, there's a couple of pictures here. Um, I'm just doing a Google image search. Really and, brave. Um, so here's, here's one. I know. I'm, <laughs> Check. And I'm going to use the view image button that they took Ooh, away from yeah. me. Um, oh, no, I can't. But uh, you can kind of see here, this is a view from inside. Actually, this looks like a computer render. Are those real people? Um, but see this just giant glass wall, and you can see the trees. This is inside of the building. If, if uh, that's real, it looks like zombies know. just walking around. <laughs> Just, I, that's which that could be, be with their phones. Yeah. That's got to be a computer render. That just well, it, so. now that's a real picture. It is. Um, you know, people. Have, nobody wears a backpack in a computer sure, render. Everybody true. knows that. But you see, how you can just see right through the whole building. Yeah. So imagine you're walking in. There's a little double door way down there, but uh, you're just walking and smack right into that. Now, I mean, you have to have your nose in your phone or in your tablet to do that. But it, like you said, they, they're the ones who make the phones and tablets. They probably encourage people to do it. Maybe I was I was looking at my Apple Watch and. <laughs> Yeah. There you go. So maybe well, maybe they'll have some new device next year that's like a uh, collision alert detection. Sure. Yeah, your your watch will start to beep when you're about to walk into into a wall of glass. Part of Face ID, right? Oh, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, or maybe the glass will become your screen, and it'll somehow project so you can get that depth perception. There you go. There's there's something there. We'll see. It's all very exciting, um, and things we'll look for in Apple's uh, new building uh, version two. Uh, well, this next story, Don, uh, you put this into our, our chat, into Slack, and 
I got confused at first because basically what I'm reading here is the apology. So yeah. saying something went wrong <laughs> at this company, and and so I came to you. I said, "What what's going on here?" And and the story is just uh, uh, it's it's a special kind of dumb. All right. So um, this one, it was kind of blowing up in the security forums and stuff. I, I monitor a lot of, of places for news, and um, this one it came and went, so it wasn't a big news article. But uh, there's a company called Flight Sim Labs, and they have this product called A320X, and it's a simulator for uh, Airbus, Airbus A320. Yeah. So if you want to become a commercial pilot, you can fly this. And they noticed they were having a high level of piracy, that people were stealing this. And the way their system worked, the way their, their DRM worked, is that the device would phone home and check in. And so they could actually tell not just that people were pirating their software, but they could actually tell where the first person, the person who was breaking the DRM, where they were. And they could tell uh, uh, by some basic information. So they they were, they were kind of, they knew a little bit about that person. They knew their IP address, and, and they knew basically a, a simple geographic location for who this was that was pirating their software. And they wanted to find out more, right? Now, instead of contacting the authorities, they changed their DRM to include, include a, a keylogger, uh, basically like a, a little um, rootkit. It did a few different things. And when you updated their software, you were now installing their keylogger and this other information. And whenever you launched their flight simulator, it would phone home. And if your IP matched the one of the person who was pirating this stuff, the keylogger and all would activate. And it would activate and it would capture everything you were doing and send it back to them. If you weren't at the attacker's IP, then it wouldn't activate, right? So they figured, hey, this is on the up and up. Nobody's going to care because it's only going to activate on the uh, on the the pirate, you know, the software pirate's uh, computer. But once it all rolled out, I mean, you know, antivirus programs and other things were picking it up and seeing it, and security researchers started getting involved. And they looked and they're like, wait a minute, there's there's keyloggers here, there's a web proxy here, like it can record everything that you're doing. And it's sending your credentials back to, to this company. And so they immediately had to do damage control. It's a massive violation of pri uh, pi not pri piracy, privacy. You know, never really thought about how violation piracy and privacy piracy. are so close. Yeah. But uh, it, it's, it's a massive violation of, of uh, privacy, even for the person who's stealing the, the software and breaking the DRM and redistributing it. Um, you know, you, you've got to have warrants. I mean, unless you're the government, then apparently it doesn't matter. Yeah, but, yeah. but um, uh, you know, they just didn't follow that procedure. And I can kind of see where, like, they thought it was a good idea at the time, but then they had to back off that real quick. Well, I can see someone, you know, the president of the company saying, oh, let's find out who these guys are. But there's got to be someone that steps in. And, you know, if someone was smart enough to be able to, you know, write this or or find the key logger and package it. Now, so someone who can do that stuff knows that it's wrong. And, and it makes me think back to a couple of weeks ago, we had the interview with um, with David from, from Plum, and, and we were talking about hacking the hackers. And, and I think one of my questions was, you know, well, well aren't you a hacker then? Do you, it, are there times where you're, you know, on that gray area of breaking the law? Is there something that they could have done here, aside from a keylogger to identify this person, besides just saying, hey, FBI, here's sure. an IP address? So, um, you know, what... What we were talking about in the Plum interview, he was saying, you know, the, he wasn't really like hacking the hackers back. He was making it where it was really difficult for the hacker to figure out what was a real system, what mm -hmm. was a fake system. They were creating tons of fake clones, right? Um, so that's not actually doing anything to the hacker's computer. But they were tagging them, to, or, or or just kind of making a note, I guess, on their system of and this IP address is this. Is, yeah, there was a hacker. there was a, a web cookie that was a being cookie, created, right. uh, which. Again, you, you create web cookies uh, pretty much anytime you hit a website. So yeah. there wasn't really anything out of the ordinary there. But here, they're installing a full-blown keylogger, yeah. right? And even if they were just trying to do it to find the person's first and last name, when you do that, you can't help but get all of their information. And and that that's illegal. Like, this this went too far. Yeah. This, this wasn't a gray line anymore. This is pretty cut and dry. So it was a really bad idea. Um, apparently, they didn't think about it. Or they probably just didn't think anybody would notice. They're like, it's only going to activate on the hacker's computer. Nobody else will notice. Let's just roll this thing out. But, man, it was a fireball of uh, just Internet comments and people going nuts over it. Um, so they, they, they're doing damage control. They've removed it. But I think the big lesson here is that they pushed this out as part of an update to their software. 
So you may have been running their software for years and it's been perfectly safe and trustworthy all this time. And then that update comes out and now is not so trustworthy. Uh, we talked a little bit about Chrome extensions in an earlier podcast and how Chrome extensions might start out trustworthy and then become very malicious. So we're starting to see that spread through all sorts of software. You, you really have to make sure that you only purchase software from uh, companies that are, are reliable and, and trustworthy, which unfortunately, uh, I, can't, I can't think of any companies that fit that description, but uh, maybe there's some out there somewhere. And, I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm curious to see if there will be you know, any further, um, you know, if there are charges, you know, in this, because it's, it's one of those things where ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And I, I think they're based in the UK, just based on, there were a couple of misplaced U's uh, in their words, so I'm assuming, and they, they spelled <laughs> theater with an R before the E, but, um, but I'd be curious, I mean, obviously, that's a, a place that, uh, that takes privacy very seriously, you know, part of the GDPR. Uh, well, that, so. thanks to, um, Thanks to new EU rules, yeah. uh, it doesn't really matter where your company is. If you're selling to people in Europe, you have to conform to those rules. That's true. And uh, you know, in this case, they they could they could get a pretty big fine. And I get the impression that they're not a giant company. I, I could be wrong. They could have ten thousand employees, but yeah. I, I I get the impression that it's just a handful of people. So if they do get a fine or something, it, it could it could drop them out of business. It, yeah. it could be a big deal. And I think this was a CEO doing this apology and. Um, I'm assuming he's using an alias because his name is Lefteris Calamaris. So I'd, um, that's made up, right? Well, he could be from Greece. That's true. All right. right? Well, I'll allow that. But that seems like a Greek name, doesn't that, it? That seems like an awesome name. And, uh, you know, I, I hate that it got run through the mud here, but uh, <laughs> Lefteris, I'm sure, will be on every uh, parent's now you baby know the name, name list for your second child. Year. Yeah. Second, who knows how many kids? Left heiress. It, it could be a boy or a girl name. It's really flexible. Really, yeah, it, exactly. Good. And, you, and you hope that they're left-handed. But uh, anyway, uh, I think I, you know, I hear Don's getting some emails back there uh, on his on his <laughs> Mac. So sounds like it's probably time for us to wrap up this episode. And uh, you know, thank you again to Asif um, from Parent for joining us today. And I know we've got another great interview next time. Uh, we're talking to uh, the guys over at Benderhawk. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about what that is and how that can help you with your SaaS um, software that you have uh, in, your, in your company. So uh, that's going to wrap it up for us. Be sure to rate us, like us, review us, uh, and do all those things. Share us, tell us, uh, tell your friends about us so everyone can enjoy the IT Pro TV podcast. But until next time, for Don, I'm Peter, and make sure you have a password on your bucket. Is that right? Is that a thing? You gotta practice safe no. bucketry. Was it your? Was it the bucket or on your Kubernetes? Uh, well, either one. They they both kind of. I mean, you don't know, you don't necessarily have to set a password on your your S three bucket. You okay. just need to IP restrict it or something. You can set a password. So for 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 Don, I'm Peter telling you to set an IP thing on your bucket. Yeah, don't forget your bucket. Bye.